Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens, who is a research fellow in the philosophy department at the University of Haifa and a very dynamic Jewish educator. He is an ordained rabbi uh, studying various uh, Israeli rabbinical uh, schools and uh, is also the association chair and co-founder for the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism. Uh, I should also say that his uh, previous experience in South Africa has include uh, Limud and uh, um, Sinai and Daba, uh, speaking at various community uh, institutions, and most recently chaired a panel on Iran at a one-year memorandum of understanding uh, conference between the University of Free State and the University of Haifa. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. It's my pleasure. I, I've been listening very carefully since the beginning, so I want to know whether I am devout or divine, off the wall, or what was it, or something in between? Off, 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 yeah, off the wall or, or anything in between. Yeah. Where do you <laughs> place me on that map? I mean, it's 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 a good point, and, and in fact, we have quite a lot of, of discussion points, which uh, I hope that the listeners will not be entirely sure uh, which of those to, 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 to choose. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask, Rabbi, you, you have a bit of a thing for our country. Why is that? I do. Well, look, um, when I was, I was involved in student politics when I was, um, when I was young and, uh, and um, bright-eyed. And uh, it, that's in, in, back in Britain, where I, where I grew up. I was actually on the executive of the National Union of Students, which in Britain's a very, well, it was um, a very powerful organisation. It had six, uh, about six million members. And um, I was um, elected onto the national executive of that union, um, predominantly backed by the Union of Jewish Students, um, and it was partially an exercise in um, um, the politics of, of, of Israel-Palestine and the Israeli-Arab conflict um, gets exported, as you know, onto campuses all over the world, not just in South Africa. And part of the reason for Jewish student involvement in the National Union of Students was to represent a different narrative on the Israel-Palestine and Israel-Arab conflict. But that wasn't the only reason. I mean, uh, Jewish students were part of the student body in Britain and had uh, their interests uh, just as regular students to kind of represent. Um, and as I as I became some, somewhat more prominent as a, uh, a student politician, uh, I was invited by a, a charity called ACTSA, which is Action for Southern Africa, which is kind of the remnant of the British... Um, anti-apartheid movement, uh, which after the fall of apartheid became a charity to kind of support uh, the people of Southern Africa and to keep their profile high on the um, foreign policy agenda in Britain. So this wasn't just uh, uh, the people of uh, South Africa, but also people in, in Swaziland, people in uh, Zimbabwe uh, and Lesotho and other, other sub-Saharan yeah. countries. So um, as part of that, I was invited to, to go on a trip 
from southern Africa. We went to Swaziland in a number of different states in, in South Africa to meet student politicians, trade unionists and more. And um, and that trip was just the trip of a lifetime. It was actually in the first um, year of my marriage. And uh, we managed to bring my wife along as well. And we just had an amazing time. And I read, I did a lot of reading about the... Um, about the struggle before I came there so that I should, you know, uh, get as much as I could from, uh, from the trip. And something about the country and the people, especially in rural South Africa, I remember visiting a school in, in KwaZulu-Natal that, uh, was a life-changing experience and, and, and people in Swaziland as well. Um, something about the spirit of the country. I was there on youth, it's, it's youth day, right? In, in, June 16th, that's right. Uh, June 16th, right? So I was there on Youth Day and we went to the, uh, to the, to the, uh, stadium in Soweto for the, uh, kind of national commemoration of Youth Day. And it was just the, the spirit of the country, the color, the vibrancy, the dignity of the various different, um, uh, people, uh, and communities. I don't, I, you know, I can't, I can't say more than that, but it was kind of love at first sight between me and South Africa. Well, I'm very glad that they did a good job because uh, it certainly has been nice uh, to have you uh, on uh, in, our, in our country for various times. By the way, if you want to ask uh, Dr. Rabbi Samuel Liebens any questions during the show, you're more than welcome to. You can SMS us on 34519 or you can uh, send us a telegram on 061 I should say that my love of South Africa came before my love of the of the Jewish community of South Africa, uh, because, you know, that trip wasn't about the Jewish community. But I have since, as you've mentioned, uh, had the great privilege of coming to South Africa as a Jewish educator for the chief rabbi's fabulous Sinai in Daba, which was, again, life changing and have been uh, heavily involved and a big supporter of Limud internationally and of Limud South Africa Um so, you know, so my, like, my love affair with South Africa has, has very much embraced the Jewish community too. And, uh, you, you stay in, uh, you stay in Haifa, uh, uh, with your family. We're at the Haifa University. Uh, you, you, have you just been let out of lockdown over there? Uh, partially. I mean, my kids are still at, our, our older two kids are still at home learning. Um, the schools are still closed, you see. So they're still doing distance learning. Kindergartens have, uh, have opened up. So our youngest child has gone uh, off to Gan quite happily, off to kindergarten. But um, it still doesn't really feel like the end of lockdown. It's a kind of a partial um, lifting of of some of the restrictions. Yeah, I, it's something that uh, is uh, very concerning to uh, watch and see that what's going on in Israel at the moment. We're talking to uh, Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. Uh, he's a research fellow in the philosophy department at the University of, the, of Haifa. Uh, and we just found out why he's unusually connected to South Africa. But after the break, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of Judaism and uh, what does it mean in practice. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Talking today to Rabbi Dr. Samuel Levens, a research fellow in the philosophy department at the University of uh, Haifa. Uh, I wanted to start uh, the discussion with the question around the fact that you are the chair of the Association for the Philosophy 
of Judaism. Now, normally we would associate philosophy of Judaism to be something that would get studied in places that you're very familiar with. Uh, Yeshiva Ha'etzion, for example, Yeshiva HaKotel, <coughs> the Israeli rabbinical schools that you've been through, and yet you'd study this in the universities. Is there something different when we talk about is, uh, Jewish philosophy or philosophy of Judaism when you're doing it in a, in a university setting, or, or is it something different from how we normally understand that uh, in, in uh, say, a Yeshiva context? Yeah, well, it's an important question because there are actually three locations uh, of note in which Jewish philosophy in some sense or other is studied. There's the yeshiva. But then within the university, there are two departments where you might go to study Jewish philosophy. Most commonly, you might go to the Jewish or Hebrew studies department. Um, and in such departments, there will be courses on Jewish thought. But I I do not sit in a Jewish studies department. And the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism is really an association for scholars who sit in philosophy departments. Um, now, we can we can talk about the difference between philosophy of Judaism as studied in those three places uh, in the following way. Um, in in the yeshiva, um, there are people who teach the philosophy of Judaism. Um, obviously, you, you go, you know, in, in most yeshiva rabbinical schools and seminaries, you get classes on the Tanakh, on the Bible. You get classes on Talmud, which takes up most of, of, of the uh, syllabus of uh, certainly in the rabbinical schools, um, halacha, Jewish law. But there will always be offerings of classes in Machshava. However, um, I think it's fair to say, and I, I speak as a committed Orthodox Jew, but I think it's fair to say that orthodoxy in recent years has exhibited a certain amount of fear even uh, to articulate new philosophical theories. So instead, what you'll do in the yeshiva is you'll study the philosophy of the Rambam, you'll study Maimonides, you'll study the philosophy of the Ramban, Nachmanides, and, and various other central figures of Jewish thought. You'll study them, you'll engage with them, and what's more, they'll be taught as a true and living philosophy, but what you won't be encouraged to do is to articulate your own views. Uh, because some people, I think, are scared that doing so might lead uh, into less orthodox positions or it might lead to heresy or it might lead you to ask questions that you don't have the tools to answer. And therefore, there's a certain fear. Um, so that's one place in which Jewish philosophy is done. And then you go to the Jewish studies department and it's kind of the opposite extreme because Jewish studies, um, which emerged really in Germany um, before the Second World War, takes Judaism and views it as a historical phenomenon. So I, I call this museum exhibit philosophy. So you're not really interested in whether what Maimonides said was true or what Nachmanides said was true or what later thinkers like Levinas or Rosenzweig. The interest isn't were they right or wrong. The interest is who were these people? Why did they say what they said? What were the sociological, historical and political factors that gave rise to their thought? Well, that's a very interesting and important endeavor, but it's more like intellectual history than philosophy. And therefore, the Association for Philosophy of Judaism was born um, because a number of us felt that the philosophy department would be a place in which 
committed Jewish philosophers would be encouraged to engage with Jewish philosophy as a living discipline in which we could articulate our own theories and critique one another, offer arguments for why this part of the Rambam is a strong philosophical argument, but why this part of the Rambam needs to be replaced with something stronger, for example. So that's my whistle-stop tour of Jewish philosophy in those three locations. We're talking to Dr. Rabbi Sam Levens, uh, and uh, he is explaining, talking to us about Jewish philosophy and, 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 and what it means. And if you do want to ask any questions to uh, Dr. Rabbi Sam, please go ahead, 34519 on the SMS line, or, three, uh, or you can also send us a telegram. Uh, now, as I was starting to read some of your philosophical uh, works, um, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> well, we had to prep the show, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, in, and make ourselves more intelligent uh, for the discussion. It, it, you, I came across a paper which uh, yeah, I don't want to cause anyone to lose their breakfast, but it was an interesting uh, exposition on the intersection between uh, Jewish uh, philosophical approaches to excrement. Um, yes. And 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 particularly, it seemed to me as someone who's not a philosopher that the, the 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 paper was attempting to look at how to deal in this case, yes, with excrement within a philosophical approach and how is it <laughs> yes. godly or not godly. Yes. Uh, but but it seemed to me that in in a funny way, we're dealing with a similar issue with COVID at the moment. Yes. Uh, in that you have something which is affecting the whole world, which is not considered uh, a positive. Uh, which is, you know, uh, creating all sorts of problems, and and how do we deal with it philosophically? And also, in the, in the same vein, uh, you know, you you can't help but think about all of the biblical approaches to hygiene and cleanliness in some way, and not think about not touching one another and COVID and and being in yes, close proximity. Yes, indeed. Look in that in that paper, uh, it, it's a paper. It's called "On Where God Isn't." And it's an exploration of a, pro of a problem in the philosophy of religion in general, not just Judaism, although I was interested in articulating a Jewish response to the problem. that The problem is related to the problem of evil, but it's not identical. So the problem of evil, for, for those listeners who are, who are unaware, but uh, I imagine this is revision uh, for most people, but the problem of evil says, look, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, as the, as the classical uh, Abrahamic religions suggest, then he's powerful enough to get rid of evil and loving enough to want to get rid of evil. And yet we see evil, pain and suffering, injustice all around us. And um, that's a problem. That indicates that our belief in an all-powerful, all-loving God is ungrounded. Because, like I said, if he was powerful enough to get rid of evil and loving enough to want to get rid of it, then he would have done it. And there are various philosophical approaches uh, to explain how belief in the existence of God is consistent with um, the existence of evil around us. There are two types of evil that are very important to distinguish. There's the moral evil um, that is done by free human beings who choose to do horrible things. And, and, and that evil is perhaps somewhat easier to explain for a theist. Because we say, well, look, it's not really God's fault. God created us and he gave us freedom. And for some reason or other, from his perspective, giving human beings freedom was important enough to justify the risks inherent in giving us freedom, namely 
the possibility that we would misuse that freedom, giving rise to what we call moral evil. But there's also natural evil, cancer, um, um, drought, uh, floods and plagues like the plague that's hitting us now would count as a natural evil. Um, Although there are times when you might think that we exacerbate natural evils and it could be that some of uh, the ways in which the modern consumer society uh, um, is calibrated that promote uh, uh, even pandemics like this one um, to do with the way in which we treat and live with animals, uh, for example. Um, but there's moral evil and there's natural evil. Why does God allow these things? These are good questions. My my, my somewhat humorous question uh, uh, in this paper about excrement uh, was only supposed to be humorous on the surface. Uh, deeper down, uh, the question is, there are some things which are not evil, but all of us would think of as being somehow ugly or yucky. Now, often the ugliness or the yuckiness uh, comes from, uh, uh, as in the case of excrement, uh, good hygiene reasons. But the idea is, the idea of the paper is, well, if God um, is the God that we believe him to be, surely nothing in the world would be objectively yucky, objectively disgusting. Nothing in the natural world would be such that disgust would be an appropriate uh, response. And yet there do seem to be things in the natural world to which disgust uh, is an appropriate response. Uh, but I would say that COVID, though related, is is more um, is more closely related to the pro- is is yet more closely related to the problem of evil. The question is why would a good and loving God allow a pandemic like this to wreak the the, the havoc that it's done uh, with people's health, but also with people's livelihoods and the political stability um, that we used to take for granted? Or I don't know if we ever did actually take political stability for granted, but it's a it's a problem of evil. So, so certainly not in South Africa and, and Israel, political stability, not, <laughs> no. uh, not, not not a question that we would ever have to have dealt with philosophically, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but, but certainly if, 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 your, uh, if your listeners would like to raise questions about the problem of evil and how, how a philosophical theologian um, might look at the rise of this pandemic, it would be something I'd be happy to discuss with them. Talking of which, your, your latest book, is the principles of, of Judaism. You've written a whole mm-hmm. book, uh, Oxford University Press. I was, I was a little bit sort of taken aback given your, your, your discussion that you just had about sort of developing new ideas. I mean, is, is this just a summary of what we already know about Judaism or are you trying to advance how we think about, uh, what actually defines a, a Jewish principle? Because in some, in some respects, Judaism is not a, a religion of principle. It's kind of a religion of practice. Right. Yes, that uh, that seems fair. Um, so the book, the book tries to look, the book does the following. It says, uh, hi, everybody. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm religious. I keep all of these weird rituals and practices. They play a, a regulative role in my life. Can I justify that? Um, what beliefs um serve as the foundation to this justification, even if it's only a self-justification of the lifestyle that I've adopted. Um, Now, you're right, Benji. I think it's true that Judaism, um, especially as compared to other religions, 
places much more of a premium upon right action than it does upon right belief. But still, uh, I think two things should be said. The first is that traditionally uh, it was thought that there are some beliefs, some core beliefs that are so central to the Jewish life that if you were to deny them, and especially if you were to deny them publicly, which which becomes something akin to an action, a public denial of a belief, uh, that you would somehow place yourself beyond the pale of normative Judaism. And that the most famous attempt at coming up with a list of such beliefs, those core beliefs, the denial of which would place you beyond the pale, um, was the attempt of Maimonides in the 13 Principles of Faith, which uh, are well known to Jews. They're still in the Siddur. They, they feature as part of the prayer service. Uh, the poem Yigdal, which is sung at various points in the, uh, in the synagogue, um, is a poetic uh, um, crystallization of those 13 principles. But there's a second question. So the first question is, you know, officially, what will make you a heretic if you, if you, if you say these things aren't true? And, and it's always been quite a minimal set of things in Judaism, because as you said, the premium is on right action rather than right belief. But my interest in the book was less upon that. Uh, my interest in the book was how do I personally justify? And I, and I say, I offer to my readers what I take to be the three minimal beliefs that if you could believe these three things and, and perhaps nothing more, these three things only, it would be enough to justify commitment to an orthodox Jewish way of life. And, and that's the project of the book. Very, very interesting. Well, another another element uh, that you've been working on uh, recently, which, uh, well, recently uh, uh, which, which I do find interesting, given what's going on in the Middle East uh, at the moment and some engagement with, with your neighbors, is that you're using philosophy in a debate to try and handle textual differences between uh, in this case, Jews and Christians. Uh, you know, obviously in the last, particularly since 1965, but, but maybe even since the 80s, there's been a, a, a sort of engagement with, uh, with Jews and Christians, uh, more yeah. readily than we've seen in the last, certainly the last two millennia. Uh, yeah. but that has also brought into, into sharp focus some of the, the textual and, and biblical differences and in interpretations. And, uh, this has caused something of, of a constant, consternation amongst uh, uh, people uh, in, in terms of how do we view how we uh, approach how do we view how we approach the texts in terms of also considering what other people think about it mm -hmm. yeah um, look so I, I belong to a school of philosophy which is the dominant school in English speaking countries uh, in philosophy departments it's called analytical philosophy and this is a style of philosophy uh, that takes logic very seriously. We learn mathematical logic as we uh, become analytical philosophers. We take science very seriously. And we're very interested in uh, building up rigorous, logical arguments for our philosophical claims. We're also very interested in the way that language works. Um, and, and that's the dominant school uh, of philosophy in English-speaking countries. Now, Jewish philosophy um, hasn't really embraced this school called analytical philosophy. The last great moment of Jewish philosophy was basically in Germany before the war. 
you had people like Franz Rosenzweig uh, and um, and Herman Cohen, um, later thinkers, after, post-war thinkers like Rabbi Yosef uh, Soloveitchik and um, Franz Levinas and uh, Avram Joshua Heschel. All of those thinkers were trained in Germany before the rise of analytical philosophy. And it's a much more poetic um, kind of existential uh, literary form of philosophy, much less uh, logical, uh, much less, uh, um, um, you might even say much less rigorous um, than analytical philosophy. And if you want to know where the best analytical philosophy of religion has been in the last 50 years, it's been in the Christian world. And therefore, um, the Association for the Philosophy of Judaism, when we have been trying to um, make philosophy of Judaism a respectable field within philosophy itself and within analytical philosophy itself, the people who we most quickly look up to are the analytical philosophers who have, to a large degree, made Christian belief in philosophy departments much more respectable than it used to be. So we work hand in hand with Christian philosophers. And I, sh I should say, uh, over time, we've also been working with Muslim philosophers. I think it's fair to say that Jewish and Islamic philosophy is somewhat behind Christian philosophy these days in terms of um, marrying analytical philosophy with uh, traditional texts. Um, and Muslim and Jewish philosophers are now trying to catch up and we do some work together with them and with our Christian uh, uh, colleagues. And I should point out that this is not all that different to what happened in medieval Jewish philosophy, which was that Christian, Muslim and Jewish philosophers, rabbinic philosophers and Karite philosophers, who were kind of a, a non-rabbinic group of Jewish philosophers, they all read the works of one another, criticized the works of one another and grew from that um, interaction. So I think it's very important for Jewish philosophers to be reading uh, uh, the philosophy of Christians and Muslims um, because we have enough shared um, philosophical doctrines that we all stand to benefit um, from reading each other's work, from critiquing each other's work and hopefully from growing uh, through that interaction. We're talking to uh, Dr. Rabbi Sam Liebens today, all the way from Haifa on 101.9 Chai FM, talking about philosophy on this Monday morning and the uh, approach of Jewish philosophy uh, and philosophy of Judaism. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Schulman. 101.9 Chai FM, talking to Dr. Rabbi Sam Liebens today about uh, philosophy and Judaism. Uh, Dov sent us in an SMS, thank you Dov, saying uh, that this might be an interesting philosophical problem. Uh, there's a reason why we wandered in the desert for 40 years. We couldn't even agree on which way is north, which I'm assuming uh, is probably not an uncommon problem uh, in the departments of uh, philosophy, uh, if, if argumentation is anything to go uh, by, Dr. Sam. Um uh, one of the, the the themes that runs through your work uh, is an interesting Bertrand Russell, interesting guy, yeah. uh, very much a father of, of of certain kinds of modern philosophy of the 20th century, uh, a pacifist and atheist. What, what what do you find inspiring about him that you that you you write and, and work so often on on his on his thought? Yeah, sure. So so my work isn't only on Jewish philosophy, although it has been the um has been kind of my focus for the last few years. 
Um, my first book was um, uh, about Bertrand Russell and his approach to the philosophy of language, the nature of meaning. Um, look, first of all, Bertrand Russell was um, one of the founding fathers of this school that I belong to, analytical philosophy, this this school of philosophy that's very much based upon uh, the study of logic and language. And um, I kind of fell in love with his work um, towards the end of being an un- uh, towards the end of being an undergraduate. There's a there's a sort of uh, excitement in reading his early work, uh, The Principles of Mathematics, was a book he wrote in 1903. Um, you get the feeling as you read it that um, he was on the cusp of seeing the world in a totally new way. And it's always very exciting to read the work of somebody um, who is founding a new philosophy uh, because it has that kind of freshness. It has an excitement within it, um, um, a kind of awe um, at the world that you seem to be seeing afresh through new eyes. And Bertrand Russell uh, also was a fabulous writer. Uh, indeed, he's one of the... Uh, few philosophers to have won the Nobel Prize in literature. And in in large part, that was because he was a tremendous stylist in the English language. Um, So not only was he feeling, I think, a sense of awe as he thought he was uncovering uh, the basic structure of reality with his new uh, philosophical outlook at the turn of of the last century. Um, He also manages to capture that sense of excitement, I think, and that sense of awe in his prose. And, and that very much kind of captured me. And though he wasn't a religious man, uh, indeed, uh, he, he was well known for his... Uh, he, was, he was perhaps one of the most uh, popular public atheists of his time, like a, a precursor to, to Richard Dawkins of today. Um, although I hate to make that comparison because I think Russell was a much more serious thinker than Dawkins. But, um, you know, if, if, if I was going to write atheistic polemics, I'd do a better job than Dawkins. And so did Russell. But look, um, that's a distraction. Um, I often, I often think that Russell was, was deeply interested and passionate about, um, finding the truth. And that's an almost, uh, doggedly religious pursuit. He wanted intimacy with reality itself. He wanted to touch the real world. He wanted knowledge. And I think that's a deeply religious conviction or drive uh, that Russell had. Uh, sadly, he wasn't able to convince himself that God exists. And indeed, he said, you know, if I get to the pearly gates and the angels are all very upset with me for not having believed, I'll just say, well, you didn't give me enough evidence. And, uh, you know, he tried. I think he, he tried to believe. And, and very often I think that my philosophy, however wacky my own views are at times, I often think my philosophy is basically what would have happened if you add theism to Bertrand Russell's outlook. I think that the, the view very quickly collapses into the sort of philosophy that I embrace. One of the elements that, uh, that has been interesting is that, is that people who are in, more interested in studying traditional Jewish texts, interested in how they can make uh, Jewish thought relevant for people. Uh, I think I've found an outlet in some of your thinking because it's uh, maybe it's a slightly left of field. 
um, kind of approach to uh, to teaching Torah. Um, mm. And I'm just interested in, in how you find that process and also where people can find uh, some of your regular Torah commentary, mm-hmm. uh, anything that you've, that you've been writing. Thank you. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think it's very important for uh, philosophers uh, connected to a religious tradition, so philosophers of Judaism, not to be uh, confined only to their ivory tower. Uh, some of the things that I've written are without doubt difficult to read. So this Principles of Judaism book that I just published with Oxford University Press is not an easy read. Nonetheless, I would like to think that that um, interested lay people, if they're willing to read a couple of paragraphs two or three times to make sure they got it, um, would find something of worth therein. Nonetheless, I think it's important for Jewish philosophers on top of the the more foreboding and forbidding uh, academic work that they write to try and write things that are going to be more accessible. To that end, uh, I have a book, hopefully fundraising permitting, I have a, I have a book coming out with Magid, who are a publisher of uh, Rabbi Sachs and, and other kind of contemporary Jewish thinkers. And that book is called A Guide for the Jewish Undecided. Hopefully it will be out within a, a year or so. Um, and that book um, is is aimed at a lay audience, uh, trying to kind of distill some of the arguments and thoughts that I've been developing uh, in the university for the last few years and distill them for a lay audience. I also have a website. It's samlebens.com. And Liebens is L-E-B-E-N-S. Uh, and at samlebens.com, you can find all of my academic writing uploaded there, or almost all of it, at least the articles, not the books. Um, but also I have like a, I have some podcasts there and I have uh, some of my Divrei Torah. Last year, uh, I, I wrote a Divrei Torah uh, on every single Pasha of, of the week, on each weekly, weekly Torah reading. And they, they remain up there on my website uh, for those who, who want to study Pasha along with me. Well, there you go. Certainly well worth reading uh, if you if you want to get an analytic view of the of the, the Torah portion. Uh, Dr. Sam Liebens, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, South Africa. And thanks to you, Benji.